Now, what would come to mind for you? Um, maybe immediately you think of, um, of, of some sort of dog, maybe a police dog or a guide dog. Um, I, it, this is a silly one, but I, I can't help think of a grey squirrel. Is that what you were going to say, Sue? Be yes. Because however hard we try to stop them getting the nuts, they seem to find a way, don't they? Um, or if you, if you know a bit of biology, you, know, you might go for a chimpanzee, which is, um, I think, reckoned to have the, the largest brain of, of any non-human animal, or possibly something like a dolphin. I don't know, which are also supposedly particularly intelligent, aren't they? Um, but what would you say if I asked you to name the stupidest animal, I wonder, this morning? There are probably quite a few candidates for that. Um, but if you watch them for a while, I reckon one of, one of, the, one of the, the ones you could consider would be sheep, a flock of sheep. Um, out there in a field. And uh, it, isn't it striking how in the Bible, the animal that we are most often compared to as God's people is, um, it's, it's not dolphins, it's not squirrels, it's always sheep. And uh, not because they're cute and cuddly, it's, it's not really the image of spring lambs um, skipping in the sun or even mint sauce. Uh, when Isaiah is comparing us to sheep, he says in verse 6 of chapter 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Those famous words, doesn't he? And that's the, the key characteristic uh, of sheep that he's got in mind, that tendency to wander off, um, to leave the, the safety of the enclosure and to find some sort of trouble or danger. That's why sheep need herding, isn't it? Um, it's why farmers have sheep dogs. And in the ancient Near East in Isaiah's day, it's why shepherds uh, needed to be tough, needed to have crooks. There were potentially wolves. There were cliffs and ravines to fall into. And sheep go astray. And Isaiah says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Um, as we've looked at Isaiah over these last few weeks, if you've uh, been here in those different services, we, we've seen repeatedly through Isaiah God warning his people, uh, and indeed warning the, the whole world, that uh, there is judgment coming. Uh, because of their failure to respond to God's call. And yet at the same time, we've seen repeatedly God promising that there is hope, that there is comfort uh, beyond the judgment. And the question which has to some extent been left hanging is, well, how, how are both of these things true? How are they both possible? How can they sit together? How can there still be hope for a people who, it is clear by now, deserve God's judgment for their sins? Uh, how can this faithless, wandering, straying people like sheep be transformed into the holy people of God, as Isaiah promises? How can God show mercy to sinners without undermining his holiness? And these are not just questions um, that Isaiah poses. They're, they're the questions in many ways which are raised as we read the story of the whole of Scripture. And we've seen various pointers right through the book of Isaiah. You might remember back in the early chapters, you know, the son who would be born of a virgin, um, the Prince of Peace, who would sit on David's throne forever, as we read every Christmas, uh, the, the shoot that will spring out of the dry, dead stump of Jesse. But it's in these chapters, 40 to 55, that we find the heart of the answer to those difficult questions that is revealed in this unfolding picture of this one who will be called the servant of the Lord. Now, if Isaiah 40 to 55, those chapters that we're looking at this Lent, if they are the center point of Isaiah, then the reading that Russ has just read for us this morning is the center point of those chapters. And uh, I want to say the verse right in the center of that section is verse 5. And it is a, a classic piece of, of Hebrew poetry which homes in on what is right at the center of it. And so 
If we want to know the answer to the question, how can God make an unfaithful people into a holy people? How can he bring back those straying sheep? Uh, If we want to know the answer to the question, how can God show his infinite love and mercy without compromising on his commitment to justice and what is right? Then Isaiah 53 verse 5 is a great place to start. Let's read it again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I imagine some of you will hear some music playing as you hear those words. What is it that we find in this verse, which is right at the heart of the message of the gospel in Isaiah? This character called the servant of the Lord, which is a foreshadowing of the arrival of Jesus standing in our place as our mediator and as our substitute. So what does this mean and how is it possible? Um, How can Jesus be punished, pierced and crushed for the things that you and I have done to bring us healing and peace? Well, it works a bit like this. Uh, Maybe you've um, had experience in your life at some point of of falling out with somebody. I imagine most of us have at, at one point or another. And when two people fall out, sometimes the only hope of finding reconciliation between them, of bringing them back together, is to have some kind of mediator who can can work between them, isn't it? Someone who will be respected by both parties, um, who can understand both points of view and fairly put them forward uh, and seek to bring back together those who've fallen out. Well, the Bible tells us that's also true of God's relationship with his people. Uh, which we've ruined by our sin, which is simply our rejection of his ways in one way or another, as we've wandered like sheep. But Jesus can be our mediator with God, because he is the eternal son of God, and yet he has lived as a human being. He can represent both parties. Because he's fully human, he can represent us. He knows firsthand what it's like to live as a human. He can speak on one behalf on our behalf. He is one of us. Um, In Hebrews chapter 2, he says he is not ashamed to call us um, his sisters and brothers. And yet because Jesus is fully divine, he is also God's perfect representative to us. He can stand in God's place because he is the eternal son of God and he is holy. And so Jesus, in fact only Jesus, can stand in that place of mediation between us and God. And in the words of of verse 5 there, bring us peace. Um, But then we need to ask, how does he do that? And this, of course, is where it gets painful. And that is quite a painful passage we've just heard read, isn't it, in those famous words? Because Jesus doesn't simply stand there between us and God like some kind of negotiator going back and forth. No, he actually does what is needed to sort out the problem in the first place. He has no sin of his own, but he takes my sin and your sin onto his shoulders. And it's costly. Again, I wonder if you've ever found yourself sitting in a traffic jam. I'm pretty sure most of us will have had that experience at one time or another, probably many times. And uh, maybe you've been on the motorway in one of those long traffic jams where you sort of gradually get stuck and you crawl forward. And finally, as the traffic begins to break free, 
you realize that there was actually no need for the traffic jam at all, and that all that's happened is that well, there's been an accident on the other side of the carriageway, and as everyone gets up to it, they slow down. It's called rubbernecking, I think, isn't it? And as they go past, you know, there's this kind of slow down and stare at the ambulance and the police cars and try and work out what is going on, and it's created a traffic jam on the other side. Isaiah's description of the suffering of God's servant, uh, painting a picture of Jesus on the cross a few hundred years ahead of time, does feel a little bit like this in some ways. You know, we're told that he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted back in chapter 52, verse 13, which sounds great, but then we see what it involves. Verse 14, the people are appalled by his disfigurement. This picture of kind of being that morbid fascination of looking at something horrible, but you can't not look. Um, chapter 53, verse 2, it's not a beautiful image. His appearance is not attractive or desirable. Verse 3, he's despised. Because the place where God's servant is lifted up and glorified is not on a throne at this point. It's on a, on a cross, on a hill outside Jerusalem all those years later. Why does this happen? How can this happen to the perfect Son of God well, that's the second word which we often use to describe Jesus here. We, I've mentioned mediator. The, the second one is substitute. He is our substitute. Now, again, we all know what a substitute is, don't we? Uh, the World Cup draw took place on Friday night, didn't it? And uh, very, you know, the newspapers got all excited imagining England playing in the World Cup final. Well, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. But imagine that that is happening and that Harry Kane gets injured sometime during the match. Um, the thing which every England fan would dread, and he has to go off injured. What do we do? Well, it is okay in one sense. We can bring on a substitute, can't we? But the substitute cannot be just anyone. For example, here are two people who we could not bring on to substitute for Harry Kane in the World Cup final. Mo Salah, who, for those who don't know, is one of the best footballers in the world, and me. It's, it's unlikely to happen, isn't it? In that scenario, I do have something to offer that Mo Salah does not, of course. I am English. In theory, at least, I'm, I'm qualified uh, to play for England. But on the other hand, Mo Salah has something to offer that I do not, which is that well, he's one of the best footballers in the world, and we'd love to have him playing for England, wouldn't we? But neither of us will do. One of us can only represent Egypt. The other one is 50 and not very good at football. When they're on the pitch, the England team represents the whole of the country, don't they, in one sense. Um, they represent most of us here. Uh, when we bring on a sub, it has to be a footballer uh, who is able to do what is required uh, with, uh, with the, the necessary skills to do that. Also needs to be someone who's English and qualified to represent this country. Now, if we extend our analogy to our fallen world, as the Bible describes it, we're faced with the uncomfortable reality that there is no one left on the field of play who can take my place. Um, I am injured by my sin. I'm incapacitated by its effects and I'm unable to do anything about it, to rescue myself from judgment. But so are you. And so is every man and woman since Adam and Eve. Only a human being can represent us. Only a perfect holy being can do what is needed. And that is Jesus, isn't it? That's why we are here in this building this morning. We need to remember that God's plan right from the beginning was to come himself into his world. 
to live as a human while rem remaining 100% divine and perfect and to stand in our place to take the punishment that should have been due to us and to all his people but instead to stand there himself as our substitute as the only possible person who can mediate between us and God. And that's the reason for the emphasis in Isaiah 53 verse 5. If you just look at the contrast in that verse between the servant and the one for whom he substitutes, it's there in every line, isn't it? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, there is lots more we could say about this great passage. Um, I could preach, I'm sure, a 40-minute sermon for you this morning, but you'll be glad to know I'm not going to do that. But let's just note what the Lord then says of his son, Jesus, his servant, in the very last verse of Isaiah 53, where he builds on what has already been said and says, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercessor, intercession for the transgressors. That's the heart of the gospel 700 years before the arrival of Jesus. And so in, in answer to our big questions, how can God take an unfaithful people, a people like you and me, and turn them, turn us, into his holy people? How can God display his great mercy while holding on firmly to his justice and sense of doing what is right? Only by saying, I will do this myself, and going to the cross to stand in our place. That is the promise we have in Jesus. And every time we come to this table behind me, um, to do what must seem to many people in the world a strange thing, to share these pieces of bread and these cups of wine. We are doing that to remember these events. We're looking back on the same event that Isaiah was looking forward to by those hundreds of years. It is the sign that because Jesus was pierced and crushed in our place, all our wrongdoing is taken away by him, and we are invited into relationship with the God of heaven and earth, who looks at us and sees his son and says, welcome, my mercy is for you.